I want to read from the 18th chapter of Luke for our study today, and we're going to begin reading here with verse 18 of this chapter. Luke records, And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Correctly read, so reads the passage which will introduce our thoughts today. And I especially want to notice that passage in verse 22 that says, Sell all that thou hast. Before we speak, however, we feel disposed to pray. And so we wish to thank God for his blessings, for his marvelous providence and care, and to call upon his all-prevailing name. This time, let us humble ourselves in prayer. The subject of our study this morning is the one we refer to as the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to Jesus earnestly to de desiring to do anything in order to have eternal life. And you remember from the reading that Jesus told him to keep the commandments. But that was too easy. He stated that he had kept those from his youth up. And Luke doesn't record the young man's next question, but Matthew does. The young man asked, what lack I yet? And some say that he may have expected Jesus to tell him to do something like build a hospital for the lepers, or to build a synagogue for a place of worship. And you know, I'm convinced that if uh, Jesus had told him to do that, he would have done that immediately. But when Jesus told him to go and sell all that he had and give that to the poor, then that was too much. And the Bible said he went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. What do you think it was that turned off the young man so quickly? What was it that, that dulled his interest in eternal life? I think it was four little words. All that thou hast. If Jesus had said give 50%, maybe he would have done that. Or even maybe 75%. But you see, Jesus made an impossible demand of him in his way of thinking. And that was too much. He wanted 100%. And so he went away sorrowful. 
I find people who are surprised that Jesus made such a demand of the rich young ruler. And we're glad that he didn't say that to us. Although I did meet a young lady one time who said that it was impossible for anybody to be a Christian because Jesus demanded that you give all that you have. And she said, we have possessions. Many people want to be saved like the thief on the cross, you know. When Jesus said, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. But no one wants to be saved like the rich young ruler. Because after all, who wants to give all that he has? And I wonder sometimes what you and I think that Jesus requires of us. If someone came to you and said, what must I do to enter into eternal life? What would you tell them? Would you say, well, you have to hear the gospel, believe it, repent, confess Christ, and be baptized. And then you have to be careful to attend three services a week. You have to be careful to partake of the communion and give as you've been prospered and so on and so forth. Would we tell anyone that in order to reach heaven, it's going to cost them all that you have? Probably not. But you know, that's exactly what Jesus demands of us. A hundred percent. And you know, Jesus didn't even bat an eye when that young man turned away from his proposal and walked away. Jesus didn't run after him and say, well, wait a minute. What about 75%? What about 50%? What about 25 No, you see, with Jesus, it was all or nothing. And so he let him go. Now, I think it must be obvious that Jesus doesn't prohibit our having earthly possessions. After all, Zacchaeus, that you read about in the New Testament, was not required to give all that he had. And then Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple, and he was a rich man. Even Ananias was free to do what he wanted to with his goods, so long as he didn't practice any hypocrisy and try to deceive the Holy Spirit. But you see, this young man's problem was that he trusted in riches. And this comes under the statement of Jesus, uh, statement in, in the fifth chapter of Matthew in verse 29, when he said, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now McGarvey says this is phenomenal speech intended to arrest the attention of people and impress upon them the importance of dedication and consecration. And Jesus saw that the young man's problem was his wealth. That was the fly in the ointment. And the effect produced shows that Jesus struck home and actually bared the young man's most vulnerable spot. And what was that? The love of his great wealth. Have you ever noticed that Jesus seemed like tried to talk people into following him and then tried to talk them out of it? He'd turn around to them and say, are you sure you want to follow me? On one occasion, you remember, a crowd was following him and he told them, 
that in order to follow him, they'd have to hate their parents, wives, children, and themselves. Again, this is phenomenal speech. To the outsider who looks over at a Christian who uh, gives Jesus first allegiance, it would seem like they hated their parents, you see, because Jesus demands 100%. He warned them that the cost of following him was great, and they might not be willing to pay the price. And Jesus concluded with this statement in Luke 14 and verse 33, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. There you have those words again. All that you have, he wants it all. In the parables that Jesus taught, he again stressed this principle. You remember that he told the parable in, Luke, in Matthew 13 about the man who found the hidden treasure. Remember that story? In my mind's eye, I can kind of see this picture. Here's a man who probably is a poor sharecropper. And all his life, he's had to, he's had to farm somebody else's land. And one day this man is out plowing and his plow hits something in the ground. And he looks back and he sees a shimmering streak of metal. And I can imagine that he runs over there and begins to knock those clods aside. And to his utter astonishment, there's a chest. And when he opens that thing up, it's full of treasure. Why, there's gold and silver and rubies and things of incomparable wealth inside. Very quickly he covered that back up, looked around to see if anybody had seen, and then he goes in to the man who owns the field and makes a bargain with him. And he tells his wife, listen wife, I've come to a decision. We're going to sell the cow and the mule. We're going to sell the hen and the chickens. We're going to sell the furniture here, we're going to sell everything we have and I'm going to buy this place. She says, man, have you gone crazy? He says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. So he bought the place and then he lays hold on the treasure. It's his. Jesus said that's the way the kingdom of heaven is. When you give away those things of less value in order that you might choose that greatest prize, and that's the kingdom of heaven. He also told a story about the man who was a collector of pearls. Here's a man who's a connoisseur of pearls. He knows his pearls. And one day he's whipping it down the street in one of the little communities, and he sees there what he's been looking for all of his life, the pearl of great price, the perfect pearl. And so he sells his whole collection in order that he can have that one pearl. Jesus said that's the way the kingdom of heaven is. You sell things of lesser worth and value in order that you might have the greatest treasure, and that's, of course, the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, Jesus thought that was a good investment, and he was laying down one of the most fundamental lessons in his, in his teaching, and that is total commitment to the cause of Christ. Back yonder, when Moses led the children of Israel out of, out of Egypt, they gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai 
And there Moses received the Ten Commandment law that was to govern them for about 1,500 years. And the children of Israel heard the voice of God booming down from the top of the mountain as he gave the commandments to Moses. And what was that first commandment that God gave? Do you remember? Why, of course, it was, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20 and 3. And I want to point out that this was not only the first in the order of the ten, it was also first in importance. One place where God refuses to be is second place or third place. He wants first place. Total commitment is giving God first place in our lives. And Jesus echoed that same sentiment over there in the sixth chapter of Matthew and verse 33 when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. First place is what Jesus wants for the kingdom of God. Now there's nothing wrong with material things, but you see, when they become more important than God, then a change has to be made. Back yonder under the old law, God commanded that the first fruits be his of, any, of anything. When they took a city, the first city that was taken was dedicated to God. And that's true in Jesus' kingdom also. He wants first place. A preacher told about his dog that he named Frank. And his mother said she, that he always gave Frank the leftovers. But as a boy, he thought his dog was more worthy of something than leftovers. And so he would slip him food from his own plate. And on one occasion, he gave him a piece of cake. And then he concluded, I treated my dog better than some of you treat the Lord. You know, we spend our time and our money as we wish sometimes. And then if we have anything left over, we give that to God. Well, that's unfortunate, isn't it? When Sally and I have company, we never do serve the company leftovers. Sally usually tries to have a good meal, and then if there's any leftovers, we just have those when the family's present. And how much of an insult is it to God to give him only the leftovers of our lives? God demands the first. He demands the best. He accepts no other. And I see people sometimes who feel like, well, you know, if I give God one day a week, then I have the other six to use as I please. But God demands seven days a week, no less. Sometimes people feel like, well, if I give God 10% and then 1,000th of 1%, then I've done my duty and I'm free to spend the rest of my money as I wish. But I say again, God demands 100% of our income. Now we give the government the taxes that are due, and then we're free to spend the rest as we please. But that's not the case with God, because I believe that we're accountable to God for 100% of his work. You know, God uh, and his work have to be considered in every penny that we earn and spend. Now, our failure to give God first place in our life is often due 
to the fact that we're more interested in other things. Jesus told a parable one time about a man who made a great supper, a king who made a great supper. And he sent out invitations. And when they were sent out, the Bible says in Luke 14 and 18, with one consent they began to make excuse. One had to go see about his oxen. He said, I have to go prove my oxen because I've, I've bought five pair of oxen and I have to go prove them. Now think about this. Here's a man who declined a supper date. And now he's going to go out and plow at night and try out his oxen. I don't know much about oxen, but I have bought a few used cars and I certainly wouldn't buy one without trying it first. And I'm amazed that this man would invest in oxen and not try them first. That's an excuse. Then the other one had bought a field and he had to go out and see that. Evidently he'd bought it sight unseen. Again, I can't see the wisdom in that. Some years ago a fellow in Texas bought some property in Colorado and when he went to look at it, it was right on the face of a mountain. You know, it's not wise to buy something without proving it first. And then the third one, he had a wonderful excuse. He said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Now everybody knows that a newly married man needs a meal and yet he turned it down. You see, the reason was the same in all three cases. And that is other things were more important to them than the invitation. And the many excuses that preachers and elders and leaders and others hear about working for the Lord and putting God first boils down to the simple fact that other things are more important. One day I went with another preacher. We were knocking doors and we had contacted a lady who said she wanted to study the Bible. This was a young preacher I was with. And as we went back to talk to her, set up the study, she said, I can't study with you today. And she named four things. When she got to the fourth one, this young preacher threw up his hand and said, wait a minute, that's four, that's enough. Somebody said one time, when you, when you have somebody give you more than one excuse, you know that's just what it is. It's an excuse and not a reason. Because you see, if they have a reason... Say, well, I'm in the hospital, I can't go. That's all you have to say. Because a reason is just one. But when they give you more than one excuse, you know that's just what it is, an excuse. man asked his neighbor one time if he could borrow his shovel. He said, no, we're having soup for lunch. He said, well, what's that have to do with my borrowing your shovel? He said, nothing. But when you don't want to do something, one excuse is as good as another. And that's really true, isn't it? When a person doesn't want to put God first in his life, then any excuse is as good as another. There was a man one time who offered to follow Jesus, but he said, first, let me bury my father. Now, you know, that seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? He just wanted to bury his father. Remember what Jesus said? Sounds a little harsh. He said, let the dead bury their dead. Go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Well, of course, that's physically impossible, isn't it? For the dead, physically, to bury the dead physically. But he was talking about the spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead take care of those matters. Your job is more important than that. 
And I think what the boy really wanted was just to kind of hang around the house till his old daddy died, and then, then I'll go preach. Jesus said, my work's more important than that. Then there was another one who said, well, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, but, but let me first go bid them farewell at home at my house. Oh, he just wanted to kind of ride by and wave at them, and then he'd go follow Jesus. Is that it? No, that wasn't it. Here's a young man that's hedging. He wants a, a big farewell event, a round of maybe dinners and so forth. And when all that's done, then he'll go preach. Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, when a person decides to follow Jesus, he has to burn all of his bridges behind him and put him first in his life. He gives all that he has. I'm told that when uh, the Spaniards came to this new world and landed down there in Mexico, Cortez I think it was, one of the first things he did was to send a man back to burn the ships up. He didn't want anybody, you see, backing out on him going back to Spain. It was either fight to the finish or else there was no escape. And that's the way it is with Jesus. He wants total commitment. I'm told that over in the mission field in Africa, somewhere over there they had uh, roped off a place where they hoped to build a new church building. And the native people were bringing different things to contribute toward that end. Maybe a, a hen, uh, maybe a dozen eggs, maybe a bushel of corn or something of the kind. One poor African stood there and watched all of that. He didn't have anything. Finally, he just went and stepped into the, into the opening and said, I give myself. Well, you know, I submit that if he truly gave himself to the Lord that day and committed himself fully to the cause of Christ, that was the greatest gift because that's total commitment. God doesn't need your gifts. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the gold and silver. What he wants is you. And Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, this presence of or lack of total commitment is obvious in people's lives. Because in many ways, either consciously or subconsciously, we demonstrate a commitment to God or a lack of it, as the case may be. And I feel like that many of the problems that we deal with in the church are not the real problems. They're symptoms of a problem. They're symptom of something that's far greater, and that is a lack of commitment to the cause of Christ. A commitment to the cause of Christ will cure these ills. I want to mention some things that we fight, and yet I believe that what I'm proposing today will cure that. Number one is what we call worldliness. Sometimes people say, well, you know, I'd know it would be better if I didn't do it. But you know, I don't believe a person will go to hell for it. Do you? Well, maybe not. But an attitude like that puts us in serious jeopardy, where we exalt some personal Thing above the cause of Christ. 
And our job on this earth is not to see how close we can get without being lost. It's not to see how many questionable activities we can engage in and still be saved. What would you think if there was two men applying for a job driving a school bus that carried your children, and one of them wanted to show off his expertise, and he got as close to the cliff over there as possible without falling in, and the other one stayed as far away from the edge of that cliff as possible. Which one would you want driving your children or grandchildren? Well, I know the answer to that. You'd want the one that stayed away from the edge. And then the same is true of a committed Christian. See, the Christian is not uh, who is really committed is not seeing how close, how much he can do over here without falling over the edge. He's staying as far away from such things as he possibly can. And when we truly love the Lord, we're trying to please him as much as possible. We're interested in abstaining from all of those activities that would uh, make us weak. We desire those activities that will make us strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, not those that would weaken us. And true commitment is demonstrated in our attitude toward the world and its allurements. You know, there's another symptom, and that is giving of our means. A lack of commitment to God is seen in the attitude, how much do I have to give? Sometimes the attitude seems to me to be, now preacher, tell me exactly how much that I'm supposed to give, because I want to give that and not a penny more. Why is it that people don't give generously to the cause of Christ, to the gospel, to preaching the gospel? Why, I'll tell you the reason. They're not committed. Because you see, to anything that we're committed, we gladly give. Think about this. A boy doesn't begrudge the money he spends on his sweetheart. You know, I've seen old boys that may have in their pocket 35 or $40, and they'll go out and spend $35 on a bouquet of flowers to impress some girl. Why is that? Because they love her, you see. They're committed to that cause. Parents will spend and be spent for their children. Why? Why is it we parents do that? Why, we'll take, we'll jeopardize the estate in order to give to our children things that they need. And that's because we love them. And you know, when we love the Lord... We're going to give. Paul told of the generosity of those Macedonian brethren over there. He said they gave more than they were able. Listen, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 5, he said, But first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Now people may give without loving, but I want to tell you this, you'll never love without giving. Because giving is an expression of love. Generosity is a true demonstration of total commitment. And you know, when people are totally committed to the cause of Christ, we won't have to worry about the contribution. It'll be there because people love the Lord. We love the Lord. But now then I want to say something about church attendance. That's another symptom. Because a truly committed Christian is going to attend worship regularly. And if he's off away from home, he's going to think about God's command to worship in spirit and in truth. You won't hear him say, uh, do I have to come back tonight? 
Uh, where's the scripture that says I have to be here on Wednesday night? What would you boys think of a, of a, well, actually the girls, what would you think about a boy that took you out for a date? And then at the door, when you were about to say goodnight, you say, <clears throat> do I have to come back again tomorrow night? Do I have to come back again next week? Like Mama used to say, you throw the dishwater out and you'll hit that boy because he's going to be there to see her, you see. I wonder what God thinks of us who sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. And then we ask that question, Do I have to come back tonight to worship? Because you see, when people are committed to God, they're going to attend faithfully. And if they're not committed, then no amount of pressure from the preacher or the elder or anybody else is going to keep them faithful for very long because poor attendance is not the cause. That's a symptom, a symptom of a lack of commitment to the Lord. And I'm really more worried about why people absent themselves from worship than I about how many times they punch the clock. Because I don't believe a person's going to be saved just because he's spent and clocked so many hours in the church house. But a spiritual low that permits him to absent himself from the assembly is a serious matter. Neil Pryor tells of a playmate he had one time. He said they were playing one Wednesday afternoon, and of course he had to get ready for church, and they didn't. And he asked this boy, he said, uh, don't you all have church on Wednesday night? That boy said, oh yeah, we have church. But he said, it's only for those who are old and about to die and really want to go to heaven. You know, he could see that his parents didn't really care. They didn't care all that much. And he could see that there was a lack of commitment in the home. Now I want to point out this morning that total commitment is demanded. And it's for two reasons. First of all, the love of God demands it. One can't reflect upon the love that God has for man without feeling a sense of indebtedness. You see, God has never asked us to do one thing that he was unwilling to do himself. He asked Abraham back yonder in the Old Testament to offer Isaac upon the altar. And it was very near the same hill, we're told, where God gave his only son. And you know, there was no angel to save Jesus from death either. And Jesus asked the rich young ruler to give all that you have. But Jesus gave all that he had. He gave every drop of blood, as we sometimes sing in that song, for us. And when that was all gone, forthwith came out water, we're told. And as we see in our mind's eye the sacrifice on the cross, our hearts should melt at such wondrous love. That old song that we sing, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. But then total commitment is demanded of us because of the consequences. I look at it this way, friends. Either the Bible is true or it's not true. Now, if it is not true, I say let's close up the church house. Let's forget about religion. Let's forget about serving God. Let's forget about all of that. But on the other hand, if it is true, and I believe with all of my heart that it is, 
then it demands every fiber of my being. In fact, there is nothing more important in this world than serving God. And the theme of my life must be what Jesus stated in Matthew 16 and 26 when he said, What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Ira Stanfield put it this way in a song that he wrote, Oh Jesus, if I die upon a foreign field someday, t'would be no more than love demands, no less could I repay. No greater love hath mortal man than for a friend to die. These are the words he gently spoke to me. If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all that I demand. But if by death to living they can thy glory see, I'll take my cross and follow close to thee. The rich young ruler left that day thinking that he couldn't afford the price that Jesus asked. But I submit that as we view it, he couldn't afford to pass up that opportunity. You see, by his decision, he kept his possessions a few years, but he lost his never-dying soul. If that rich young ruler was about, uh, well, let's say he was 18 years old when that happened, you think about this. That was, say, in A.D. 33. Somewhat 40 years later, he'd be nearly 70 years old, maybe. He had children, grandchildren. If he'd kept all of that wealth, what happened to it? Why, in a moment of time, the Roman army came in under the command of Titus and leveled the city of Jerusalem. And all of that vaunted wealth was gone. All of his possessions were gone in a, in a moment. How much better it would have been if he had given all that to the cause of Christ and become a follower of Jesus. Jesus' invitation to us is the same. All that you have. We not only can afford it, we can't afford to do anything else, friends. And with him, it is all or nothing, and the same must be true of us. I'm through this morning. I wonder if I might be speaking this morning to a person who would commit themselves to the cause of Christ, who would lay their all upon the altar, so to speak, and say, Lord, from henceforth, I'm going to be governed by the demands of your word. I'm going to turn away from all that is wrong, I'm going to acknowledge Christ and sanctify my own lips with that wonderful confession. I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then would you not be committed to the Lord enough to allow yourself to be immersed in water for the remission of sins as Jesus commands. Now Jesus said when you do that, you'll be saved. And then you can live a life of devotion and commitment to Him and heaven will be your reward. Revelation 2 and 10 says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee crown of life. That's what we're working for. That's what we desire, and we can have it. It's within our reach, within our, our, poss uh, our possibility. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.